there's something about small towns that just seem to hold the darkest and creepiest stories. Welcome back to the swamp my friends and welcome if you're new. Today I'm going to be sharing some creepy and allegedly true small town horror stories sent to my viewers just like you. As always if you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit your story at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. Before we jump right into these stories, be sure to elbow that like button in the face so it really feels it and knows that you mean business. Be sure to subscribe if you're new and turn on notifications so you don't miss a new episode. And get ready for these creepy and allegedly true small town horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. Do you want to be the talk of the party this holiday season and have everybody asking, Where'd you get that? This holiday season, Uncommon Goods is your secret weapon. Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. Whether you're shopping for your secret Santa or your entire family, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. Personally, me, my friends, and my family are big candle lovers. We love cool candles especially the custom ones, and they have some really awesome birth month gemstone and flower candles. They smell amazing, they're made out of great stuff, and honestly, they're very affordable. When you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small, independent businesses. These fine products are often made in small batches, so shop now before they sell out this holiday season. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade or made in the U.S. They have the most meaningful, out-of-the-ordinary gifts anywhere. From art and jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar, Uncommon Goods has something for everyone. Not the same lackluster gifts you'll find just anywhere. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. So, what are you waiting for? To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash swamped. That's uncommongoods.com slash swamped for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. An Inhuman Monster in the Road by Skyler. Hello, my name is Skyler. For safety reasons, I will not be using the actual names of the people involved in this event. I will refer to them as Alan, Dave, and Willie. For some background information, Alan, Dave, and I have known each other our whole lives. Living in a small town and our parents all being close friends, it was inevitable. Willie moved to our town six months before this incident. We live in a small, small town outside of Pittsworth in Queensland, Australia. So now we're staying at Alan's house because her parents would be out of town for two nights. Around 11 p.m., Alan and I showed the boys your channel because they didn't know what cryptids were. At 1 a.m., we all got bored and decided to go for a long drive because I had just gotten my license. While grabbing blankets, snacks, and drinks, we all talked about where to go, and Willie suggested we drive down to Gundawindi because he had never gone there, and we all stupidly agreed, even though we grew up hearing stories about that highway. At 1.30, we were ready to go and were all leaving. It was about 40 minutes to the next town between Pittsworth and Gundawindi. The only village between the two was, was Milmoran. The drive to Milmoran was peaceful and not eventful, besides seeing the occasional kangaroo or fox cross the road. There wasn't anything exciting about this drive. It was just farmed on either side of the road. We had the windows down, enjoying the warm summer night and the music up loud. 
As we got into the town, we turned down the street, and Dave started telling Willie the spine-chilling stories we heard growing up on the highway from Mill Moran to Goondawindi. Once we got on the road again, Willie began to get creeped out, so we practically begged Dave to stop telling him the stories, and with a laugh from Alan and I, he stopped, and Alan turned the music back up. Around 10 minutes onto the highway, we started getting into the more dense area of the forest surrounding the road, and there was no light pollution anymore. Hence, the only light was my car headlights, which lit up probably 10 feet to the sides of us and about 100 feet in front of us. Alan pointed at a group of four kangaroos we had assumed were roadkill, which wasn't unusual around our area, but after a few minutes, a putrid smell hit us. We rolled the windows up and turned down the music to talk about it. Then Willie rolled his window down and vomited outside. Honestly, we weren't even surprised because he did have a weak stomach from not being used to the horrible smells from living in the city all his life up until about six months ago. He rolled his window back up after tipping the water out the door to ensure the vomit was gone. Dave mentioned how putrid the smell was and described it as roadkill mixed with the tip of a hot summer day, which Alan and I agreed with him. Then a massive roo bounded out in the road like it was trying to escape from something which we found kind of odd. That's when Dave roared, What the hell is that? About 20 meters in front of our car, in our lane, stood about a 6 to 7 foot inhuman creature with glowing red eyes and arms that nearly touched the road. I swerved around it just in time and sped up, and Alan looked in the side view mirror and screamed, It's running after us! I swung my head around and saw it. It was tailgating the car even though I was going like 86 miles per hour trying to escape it. The car started fishtailing, and I could hear loud thumps on the back of the car. It was straight up a flat road, so I sped up to probably about 100-110 miles per hour, which was just enough to get away from it. But we couldn't get away from it without being terrorized and absolutely traumatized. I have no idea how to explain it. Eventually, it took us about 40 miles to get into town. Only then did we feel a little bit more comfortable when we saw some car parks. We sat in the car until about 8.30 a.m., and that's when we decided it was probably safe to drive back home. It was honestly the most terrifying experience of my life, and I don't think we'll ever drive on this highway by ourselves or at night ever again. The Cage in the Wood by Yes, I'm Fluffy 99 at the time, I was a 20-year-old female who had just moved to a small upstate town. I had grown up in a slightly larger town about 60 miles away and just wanted a new start. I love camping and often go camping in the Adirondacks, but at the time, I hadn't yet made friends to go camping with, so I wasn't going to go into the real woods alone, if you know what I mean. Down the road from me, I had been walking around and found an area where the power lines cut through a wooded section. The power lines were perpendicular to the road. It was near a house, but far enough to the right to the place where I don't think anybody would see me if they were walking the trail that the power lines made. I'm not sure about other countries, but in the United States, they keep power lines clear in case of maintenance. So I wander up there, noticing how it's pretty deep woods, and how far I can get away from the house that I saw on the road, they couldn't possibly think I'm trying to break in. And then, bing, I get an idea. I could go camping up here. It's secluded enough to give the natural woods experience, but close enough to the road that I wouldn't be in danger of wildlife or anything like that. So, I do. 
I set up camp in this little clearing that I accessed by climbing the hill, following the power lines, then turned left onto what seemed to be some sort of deer trail. Deer are absolutely everywhere in New York. Then I came upon this lovely flat grassy clearing. After clearing the dead wood away, I built my fire off to the side. I'm feeling brilliant and independent. It was creepy to sleep in the woods alone, sure, as I had always had at least one camping companion. But hey, whatever. New experiences build new skills, you know? I wandered further down the path the next day to see where it led. I walked for about an hour, and I can see some fields on the right, but they are in the distance, and there is a fence between the fields and the path. So again, I figure people can't be mad for me being here. Then I come across another path. Heading to the right, I follow it. A couple of feet in, it curves slightly, and there's an old van to the left of the path. Well, that's strange. But it's about 1pm near noon anyway, in broad daylight, and the birds are chirping. So I don't really feel in danger. I go up to the van, which had been there for a very long time, clearly. It was like a 70s style make, it made me kind of think of Scooby-Doo. And there were overgrown weeds all around it. There are streaks of brownish red going down the side from the bottom of the doors. I looked in and saw what appeared to be an old bedding or something in the back. But it was all shredded up, and the curtains in the windows were shredded as well. There was clothing strewn about. It looked like the clothing was from the 70s or early 80s. I still felt no danger per se. Snickering at the terrible fashions back in the day, I continued along the path for a short time. Until I finished rounding another slight bend. I stopped dead in my tracks. Finally. My reptile sense went off, or whatever you call it. I wake the hell up and it, it, I'm just, my head is screaming at a total volume that I've never heard before. Up ahead there is this creepy ass doll hanging from the tree by its neck with a noose. Not just stuck in the trees, but just left there as it was hanging. It was terrifying to say the least. To the right of it though, there was this huge cage-like structure, easily big enough to hold a full-sized human. It seems to be made up of pipes and other long metal objects just welded together. Some were up, some were down, some were across, and the squares they made weren't big enough to fit my head through, let alone anything else. Not that I tried, anyway. It had four sides and a ceiling. It had other creepy-ass dolls hanging from it. It also had reddish-brown stains running down the sides, just like the van. Further behind it in the distance was a run-down house. Creeped out as hell, I just turned tail and ran. I am not a runner by any means, I am a chunky girl, and I have smoked for more than six years, and I do not run. But I ran that day. I don't even remember the run, and I remember coming up upon my campsite, grabbing my tent in one swoop as I ran past. Luckily, I had put all my things into the tent. Ripping it out of the ground as I continued running, I left my cooler, my food, and all that stuff behind. I never went back for it either, and sometimes I kind of feel bad about that though. I dropped the tent stakes along the way and had to repair rips in my tent. I tore down that hill. I'm still surprised it didn't break my neck or ankle. Jumped in my car and sped home. I locked all my doors, then paced my house going, what the hell, what the hell, what the hell, for hours. It's been 11 years since that incident, and even typing it now makes my hands shake. I currently live almost 1400 miles away, but I still made sure my doors were locked. And they are. The crazy thing is, is, I wasn't even that deep in the woods. Maybe in the 1970s it would have been, who knows. As it stands now though, people live within a short walk of this place. And no, I know you will ask, I did not call the cops. I can't articulate why. My best analysis looking back is that I didn't want the creep to find me. I should have probably called them at the very least. You are probably right there. I hope it was an old crime scene and not some sick man who still keeps people in cages in the woods.
Don't Follow the Faces in the Mist by S.F. Sundown. Don't Follow the Faces in the Mist. It was a throwaway line, but one I should have listened to. We had finished up a block of training and our instructor, a wiry man everyone called Buck, invited us out for drinks. Most of the group joined, but a few stayed along. A lot of them were locals and had places to be. I was happy to have the company. As the night wore on, Buck's stern exterior came down. It is common enough to almost be a rule that sternness comes from a place of care and concern. Though sometimes misplaced, it was not so with Buck. His job was to prepare us for what we would face in our field and provide us with the tools to execute it as rangers, and he took it seriously. I was happy to have him as a teacher. At the end of the night, we said our goodbyes. He slapped down a hand on my shoulder and took in a breath. He lifted his head with his drooping eyelids and looked at me with a sustained intensity that shook clear the clouds of drunken mind. He said, The Smoky Mountains are a remarkable place, but promise me one thing. Don't follow the voices in the mist. It took me five years before I discovered why. The call came through in the early afternoon. A kid had wandered off from the campsite a few miles down the road from the ranger station. The situation is common enough. Someone had wandered off and couldn't find their way back or had managed to get themselves stuck. The majority of these calls resolved themselves the same day. We find the person and issue stern warnings. Hell, sometimes it is all over by the time we even get there. But not always. And no one in our station needed any reminding. Posted on the notice board beside the front door is a picture of Jessica. Her photo has been there for the entire five years I have worked at the station. She went missing the summer before I started. She is still there because we never found her. Jessica's father insisted the photo stay until she was either walking back out of the forest or the alternative no one wanted to give voice to. I know that photo better than any photo of my family or friends. Six-year-old Jessica with blonde hair spilling over her shoulders, fingertips poking out the sleeves of a red puffer jacket one size too big, a pair of bright yellow boots pushing up over faded denim jeans, and a big toothy open mouth smile. Her family took the photo the day that they arrived at the campsite. When the sun set on the search, her father had a copy printed and plastered all over the surrounding town. They were the clothes she had been wearing when she wandered off during the hike the family took up to the waterfall. The copy hanging on our notice board is the only one left. We pulled up to the campsite in our truck. A woman with a bright red beanie pushed down over dark hair was upon us as soon as we got out. She had her phone pressed to her ear and stuffed it in her pocket absentmindedly when she saw us. Adrenaline made her voice shrill and pushed her words together. Kyle nodded and added a few calm words to get her on track. His voice and manner are perfect for these situations. He didn't interrupt, he didn't raise his voice, he only slipped in enough words to get the information we needed. Her name was Polly, she was six years old. She had been wearing a red beanie like her mother's and had faded brown jacket on. It had been passed down through the family. She had dark brown hair and brown eyes, and where was she last seen? Well, where they were hiking was up to that same waterfall and they planned to have a picnic up there. When they made it to the top, the mist had come in so thick they couldn't see anything of the view. That combined with the chill in the air convinced them to come back down. The four had walked together, mother, father, older brother Will and Polly. She had been up there with them when they made it down. On that point, both mother and father agreed, Will had shrugged his shoulders. At the campsite, the air was clear and the fall sun warmed our shoulders. Up the mountain could very well be a different story though, and it likely was. They somehow left Polly behind the walk back. We got a vehement no. She came down off the mountain. 
Somehow, in the time between coming back down and setting up the picnic at the fold-out table beside the camper, Polly had wandered off. It wasn't like her, she was a good girl. As we listened, a small crowd circled us at the distance. Because it was the middle of the day, most of the campers were off walking a trail or sightseeing in one of the nearby towns. The ones that were around, elderly couples on retirement and families on holiday, picked themselves up off their deck chairs and came to see about the commotion. No one had seen little Polly, though. Kyle split us into two teams. The first was to search down and around the campsite, the most likely place she would be. At the back of the campsite, a tree-lined creek meandered down the mountain. Beyond the terrain was rough, grass-covered hills and gullies filled with thick bushes. If she had ventured out there, a slip could send her tumbling into a stack of reeds and no one would see her. The second team was to go back up the trail, retrace the steps the family had taken to come down. It was unlikely, but sometimes people had what Kyle called a McAllister moment. This is when a parent is sure their child is or isn't with them, and they are wrong. It is the sort of thing that leads to parents leaving their children in cars on hot days, and famously, a family named the McAllisters leaving their child home alone to stave off some would-be thieves at Christmas time. Mark and I ended up on the team heading up the trail. I'll admit I was a little disappointed. Like Kyle, I was sure Polly was somewhere around the campsite. It is a selfish thought, but on a search you always wanted to be the one who finds the person. I was sure now that it wouldn't be me. We started up the trail, leaving the campsite in the search effort behind. Before we left, the mother had shown us a photo of Polly taken up at the waterfall. I kept the picture in my head as we walked. I hoped we wouldn't be adding it to the notice board. The trail was eerily quiet. I had walked it many times and always come across people powering up or coming back down. Not today. The trees surrounded us on all sides, and the world went silent. We walked slowly, scanning through the forest on either side and calling out her name. We hadn't gone far when the mist came in, thicker and faster than usual. When you live up this way, you get used to it. There's a reason they're called the Smokies, after all. Before long, visibility was down to only a few yards. I stopped and looked back down the trail. It was no better than the visibility ahead. It almost seemed unnatural how quickly and completely the mist had arrived. I was about to say I had never seen anything like it when Mark took the words right out of my mouth. It was comforting that it wasn't just me. No wonder the family had turned back. The ferocity of the mist gave rise to a terrible thought. Polly may be up here in the forest somewhere. It would be easy for a child to wander off or even to stop to fumble with a stray shoelace for just long enough to get separated from her family. The parents had been sure she made it down, but then there was the McAllister effect. I called ahead to Mark, who had walked on ahead. When I received no response, I skipped a few paces to catch up. As an adult, and knowing the area as well as I did, there was still a moment of fear when being alone spiked in my stomach. I could only imagine what Polly was going through if she was up here all alone. Mark had stalled up on the trail ahead. He turned as he heard my footsteps and pointed out to the right. He thought he heard something. I squinted through the mist, but saw nothing. He couldn't give me any other details, only that something had caught the corner of his eye as soon as he was about to turn his head. I stepped into the trees and called after Polly. A few steps more and I stopped and listened. Nothing. Back on the trail, Mark was fixed in place. His face had gone pale. It moved, he said. What did? The mist. I turned behind and then back to Mark. I waited for a punchline or for him to break into a smile, but none came. Let's keep going. I found myself on edge. The mist enclosing us had a sudden menace to it. As we climbed it, it only grew thicker. I buttoned up my coat, and against the cold, it was like being high in the air and inside a cloud. 
We walked in silence. I called out after Polly half-heartedly. When I noticed Mark was no longer by my shoulder, I stopped and turned. I strode back down until I found him standing like a statue. He shook his head at me. He wanted to go down. I grabbed his arm and told him we had to keep going. It was our job and if Polly was up here, she was relying on us to find her. Mark is a big guy, but at that moment he looked small and fragile. He looked up to the sky and then back to me. He nodded and we continued. Up ahead, the trail turned to the left. As we approached, the bend shapes started to appear in the mist. At first, I took them to be the outline of branches leaning over the trail, but as we came closer, the outline stretched and deformed like clouds changing shape under a high wind. The shape coalesced into something that vaguely resembled the outline of a small child. I blinked my eyes and refocused and it was still there. The outline of a child running away from us, around the bend in the trail. I broke into a run and rounded the bend chasing after the shape in the mist. On the other side, there was nothing, only a blank wall of mist like before. Had I just imagined it, was my mind playing tricks? I turned to Mark to check if he had seen it, but Mark was not there. I ran back to the bend and rounded it again in the other direction. Mark? I ran a few more steps and still nothing. Mark? I called out again and again and again, but there was only silence. He was just there a second ago. He had been beside me when the bend came into view. I was sure of it. Or had he? We had walked in silence. Had he flaked, turned back, and left me alone? Surely not. Mark was a reliable guy. He wouldn't do that to me. Maybe I had a McAllister moment. But then, where was he? Mark? I called again and again. I ran 50 yards back down the trail and nothing. I stood with my hands on my hips, unsure of what to do next. I didn't want to walk back to the campground without Mark. I also didn't want to hike further up the trail alone. A pocket of warm air washed over me and back over my neck. It was as if someone pushed their mouth right up against my skin and exhaled. I snapped my head around and no one was there. I almost called out again for Mark and thought better of it. I took a few steps back up the trail towards the bend where I'd seen the shapes in the mist. On my left were the rustle of leaves and a sharp crack of a twig snapped. I stopped and peered through the mist in the trees. Something in there moved. I leaned forward. A few feet above the base of a tree, a small pocket of mist turned into a circle. As I neared it, it coalesced into a face. The face of a child. A small girl. Polly. I jumped forwards and the face pulled back further into the forest. I called out to the girl and followed her into the forest. If she was up here, I had to look. I had to be sure. Soon, trees surrounded me. The mist hung as heavy around the trees as it had done on the trail. I looked left and right, searching for the face I had seen or thought I had seen. No, it had to have been there. There again up ahead, the vague outline of a small girl. I put the picture of Polly back into my head so that I knew that it was her. Red beanie, faded brown jacket, dark hair and brown eyes. But as much as I tried to picture Polly, it was the other girl Jessica from the photo on the notice board that I saw. The blonde hair, the red puffer jacket and that big smile. I couldn't shake the image. I followed the face of the girl in the mist. I skipped a few steps to catch up, but she disappeared. I stood panting a little and called out, and there she was directly ahead standing in a small clearing. Red puffer jacket and blonde hair, six-year-old Jessica. Six-year-old Jessica who disappeared five years ago and was now here still six years old. I squeezed shut my eyes and shook my head. When I opened them, she was still there smiling up at me with that big goofy grin. I trembled. This shouldn't be. It was Polly I was searching for, dark hair, red beanie. I'm looking for Polly, I said and immediately felt foolish. The child looked up at me confused and the smile was gone. She turned a circle on the spot and when her face came back into view, her face was different. 
Not only was her face not there anymore, it was now dark, and she manifested a red beanie. It was Polly now, where it had been Jessica a second ago. Polly? I said. She made the same goofy smile as Jessica had in her photo. I shook my head and almost yelled at her. You are not real. This can't be real. The grin faded again, and her mouth twisted into a grotesque snarl. Her mouth opened wide and then wider still, unnaturally so, and her crooked child's teeth morphed into razor-sharp fangs. The moment before I turned to run, I locked with the creature's eyes, yellow and menacing. I raced through the trees, desperately seeking the trail. I swung my head around, and in the mist, a wall of faces closed in from behind. I gave an involuntary yelp and forced myself to look away. When I finally found the trail, I turned and ran at full speed down and... When I finally found the trail, I turned and ran full speed down and toward the campsite. Mark be damned, I didn't want anything to do whatever with whatever... Mark be damned, I didn't want anything to do with whatever was hiding in the forest. I turned back and before I could process anything, I hit a wall in the trail and tumbled to the ground. It was Mark. I scrambled to my feet and Mark stared at me with eyes filled with terror. Did you see it? I didn't answer him. I grabbed him by the arm and started down the trail. We had to get down. Mark made a noise, a half laugh, half cry, and I turned and followed his outstretched hand. There, standing near the trees, was Polly. But it wasn't Polly. She stood there and watched us, with an arm held out, beckoning us into the forest. Don't look at it! I fixed my eyes on the trail ahead, trying to give myself tunnel vision. In my imagination, the faces sprung up again on each side. I covered my head and yelled at them to stop, and then as if someone flicked a switch, I felt the warmth of the sun on my face. I looked up and saw the blue of the sky. We were out of it. We slowed to a walk. When we came back to the playground, Kyle asked us if we were okay. He could see that we were shaken up. I didn't know how to explain what we had seen, so I told him that we did not find Polly. The team at the base had not found her either. I am convinced of two things. Polly went missing on that trail somewhere in the mist, and whatever we saw was not her. There is a second photo hanging on our notice board. Polly has joined Jessica. Two girls taken by something lurking in the mist. North Dakota Horror by Andy J. This happened to some of my friends and me during the summer of 2021 after my high school graduation. I'm from a small town in North Dakota, and my buddies and I are the stereotypical rednecks of the city. You know, the type who drive loud trucks and is always armed somehow. We were doing what most teenagers do for fun in the Midwest, driving around and shooting signs. When we got low on ammunition, one of my friends, we'll call him Gary, recommends we check out this snowmobiling warming hut where he's experienced some paranormal activity. Now my buddies and I are all Christians and are very religious, but we couldn't pass up an opportunity like this either because we were also buzzed, or because we were just dumb teenagers with nothing to do. So we arrive at the old shack and sit in my other buddies, who will call him Larry, F-150 truck. We turn off the headlights and the dash lights and look and listen. Even though I didn't believe in the paranormal at the time and was skeptical, I felt reassured that I had my AK with me. It's important to note that it is hot for a North Dakota evening and extremely dark out. We were all content, feeling good, and someone in the back seat suddenly said it felt like we were being watched. After he said that, I flipped the safety off my AK and tried to be aware as possible. Then he shouted, Holy crap! in the most terrified 
helpless voice I'd ever heard come out of him. He tells us to look in Larry's rearview mirror. What I saw was genuinely horrifying. In this rearview mirror, this glowing white figure stands about seven or eight feet tall. It's only about 30 yards away from us peeking behind a tree. Larry immediately turns his truck on and throws it in reverse to get a better look, but just as abruptly as it had appeared, it was instantly gone. I fired a few rounds in its general direction, and immediately after I did, the air got freezing cold. After that, Larry floored it, tearing out of there like the Dukes of Hazard. We were all spooked to our bones, but one of my buddies, we'll call him Barry, says he saw nothing. Now, the white figure was terrifying, but the creepiest part is why Barry didn't see it when all the rest of us did. A Night in Horror by... Electrical Line 6982. My name is Heinrich, and I live in Sweden. I will tell you a story that happened to me years ago, but I will never forget it. The worst night and time of my life. I apologize already now that my English is not the best, but I hope you still understand anyway. In 2004, I worked as a forklift driver at a large furniture company in the small town of Husqvarna in Sweden. I loaded and unloaded trucks and collected goods that were going with them. I moved there after school with some friends, who also worked at the same company. I met a girl, and everything went well, and I lived life. But in 2007, it came to a break with my girlfriend, and my friends from school had started to move away so I felt that I didn't have much left in Husqvarna. I started thinking about moving away, maybe going back home to my childhood town of Karlstad, which is 300 kilometers north, where my parents and childhood friends still lived. Karlstad is close to the border with Norway, and one of my friends, Tobias, has started to work as a forklift driver for a Norwegian company in Oslo. A Swede earns almost three times more to work in Norway than in Sweden. So many Swedes try to get a job there. So when my friend Tobias from Norway said I could come to Oslo and look for a job at the company he worked for, I didn't hesitate. To get to Oslo from Husqvarna, you must drive about an hour west towards Gothenburg, Sweden's second largest city, and from there, move the other four hours on a highway called E6 with two lanes in both directions with some wire railing between the north-going side and the south-going side. The south-going side moves through primarily dense forest. In fall and wintertime, the E6 is heavily trafficked by trucks and other heavy vehicles. As a rule, trucks drive in the right lane, while other faster traffic goes in the left. But during August, many truck drivers are on vacation. So, at the evenings and nights, E6 is pretty much empty. So on August 24, 2007, I started traveling by car towards Oslo from Husqvarna, a distance of almost five hours. The idea was to stay for some hours or so, and then go home again. So I left early in the morning and arrived at lunchtime in Oslo. I met my friend Tobias and got to go with him to his job and meet his boss. We talked and joked around, and I immediately formed an excellent bond with the boss. And soon... I submitted my application to start working there. Afterward, my friend Tobias and I hung out at his apartment, we talked, ate, and had a good hangout. I forgot to pay attention to the time, and then I noticed it was already 11pm. Realizing I must go home now, 
I said goodbye to my friend, jumped into my car, and began my five-hour journey home. I moved away from Oslo and went into the dark, dense forest for an hour. It was a full moon, so you could still see pretty well, even without streetlights. After driving for an hour and now finding myself with a dense forest on both sides of me, I see in the rearview mirror how a car, a Volvo 240, pulls up behind me very close. I don't drive too fast or too slow, and since it's a two-lane road, I think that if they're in a hurry, they can just overtake me in the other lane. After a while, they did overtake me and pass me, but then they turn right into the right corner of the road and stop in front of me. I must quickly turn into the left lane to avoid crashing into the Volvo. I look into the rearview mirror as I continue driving, and soon they get up behind me again and are very close. And soon they overtake me again, and this time they drive away a bit and then turn into the right lane. Again they stop, and then the back door of the Volvo opens, and a massive man in his 30s jumps out and walks toward my car. I'm starting to feel uncomfortable about this, so I'm definitely not going to stop. I turn around again, go into the left lane and pass the man in the car. As I drive by, I see the man trying to grab the door on the passenger side of my car. Now, I absolutely panic and increase my speed to get away from them, but they catch up to me and do an overtake again. They stop a little way ahead, and soon the same man jumps out again and tries to make another attempt at my door. The drive continues and the same thing repeats itself over and over again. Soon I catch up with another car and I get behind this car, hoping that the people in the Volvo will get scared and give up because we are now not alone on the road anymore. But when I lay down behind this car, they and the Volvo overtake me and the other vehicle and lay down in front of us. The vehicle between us must feel threatened because after some short time, the car between us drives out on the left lane, overtakes the Volvo chasing me and accelerates and soon disappears. I pick up my mobile and dial the emergency number for Sweden which is 112, but the automatic voice operator says the number is not in use. Since I am in Norway, the Swedish emergency number does not work and I did not know the Norwegian emergency number right then and there. I call my dad and hope he's awake. My dad answers while the hunt continues in the same way as before. I explain with panic what is happening and want him to help me find the emergency number to Norway. My father is a very calm individual and rarely gets upset. He probably didn't understand the seriousness of the situation either, so he said, take it easy, try to drive away from them and stop and then ask what they want. After a few attempts to get my dad to cooperate without success, he's clearly not getting it. So I hung up and threw the phone in frustration in the passenger seat so that it bounced down between the floor and the heart and disappeared under the passenger seat. Soon, I am approaching Halden, a small Norwegian town. I see a sign showing an exit lane to the right. I think that now I am saved. I can turn off the E6 and the car chasing me can hopefully leave me alone. But to turn into the exit lane, I have to slow down. When I slow down, the car chasing me comes and drives around up on the exit lane in front of me and parks across it at the end so that I can't go off the exit lane and exit the E6 because they're now blocking me entirely. So, with nowhere to turn, I have to continue on the E6 and the panic is now massive. I'm terrified and now I decide that they won't be allowed to overtake me again before I border to Sweden. So, I accelerate up to 160 kilometers an hour, and they don't manage to overtake me. They only tend to drive up so that they are almost level with me. 
I look towards them and see how four people in the car are sitting, shouting something at me, and lunging to try to run into my car with their vehicle. We will soon be coming up to a large suspension bridge between Norway and Sweden. I panic and think that if they run over me or if I lose control of the car at this speed, I will fall through the railing and down about 50 meters if not more. But we get off the bridge, and shortly afterward there is a small truck stop where trucks stop and rest and show customs officers what they have in their cargo. I quickly turn off, and those in the Volvo continue, and I see how they disappear on the E6. I stop in a parking lot inside the truck stop and just… breathe. Now, finally it's over. I thought, but it turned out this was far from over. I bent down toward the passenger seat and tried to find the mobile phone that was under there, but I can't find it, so I leave and walk towards the customs house, which is closed. But there is a payphone outside, and I pick up the phone and dial the emergency number 112 and arrive and get connected to the police. I explained what has happened and where I am now. They tell me to get back in the car and a police car will come within 10 minutes. I thank them and get back in the car. And I'm afraid those people in the Volvo will show up again after 40 minutes without the police. So I go out to the phone and again call. They retake my report and even though I say that I called and reported about 40 minutes ago, they tell me to again wait in my car and the police will eventually be there. Although that I say that I am happy to stay on the phone with them until the police arrive, but they promise me they'll be there in a few minutes. So I hang up again. I go and sit down in the car and wait. Another 30 minutes pass without any police showing up. I sit and think about driving on. Partly I'm afraid that they'll come back here, and then I just want to go home. So after a few minutes and another attempt to find my cell phone under the seat with no success, I decide to drive on. It has been at least 90 minutes since I stopped here now, and the people in the Volvo have not come back here. So I think they are now moved on and it must be far enough away for me to be able to start making my way home. I leave the truck stop and drive out onto the E6 again. I drive for just a few minutes and come to a left turn. When I make the turn and come around to the crest of a new straight, I see to my horror. This Volvo is parked in a small parking lot next to the road. I brake to a stop and immediately feel the panic. I'm standing about 50 meters away. I'm considering turning around and driving against traffic to avoid passing them, but I don't have time to think more because the back door opens, two people get out and start walking toward my car. Another person gets out of the passenger side. The Volvo then opens the trunk and starts picking something out that I can't quite see what it is. When the other two men start walking toward me, they turn to the left side of my car and start walking toward my door. Then I don't even know, I don't even think, I just press my gas all the way to the bottom and drive away. I look in the rearview mirror and see silhouettes of the people running toward the Volvo again, and I now see from the lights of the Volvo, and I now see the lights from the Volvo start up and shine toward me. I now understand that they are now taking up the chase again. I keep driving and realize I have a bit of a lead now. I was looking in the rearview mirror and saw them in the distance. A badger runs out in front of my car when I look ahead again. I don't even have time to steer away. I just run it over with the left front of my back wheels. Right after I drive over, I hear something from the car scraping against the asphalt. Something has come loose after the collision. In panic and terror, I must get off the E6 now. Terrified that the car will break down and give up, soon there is a minor exit on the left which I quickly turn onto and get away from the E6. 
When I arrive a little way up, I see a sign from a small village that is about two kilometers away. I can't remember the name of the town now. So I start driving on this smaller road towards the village, and I still hear how it scrapes under the car. Then I see a small forest and to the right at the turn in the street, I no longer see the Volvo in the rearview mirror. And in a panic to get far away from the E6 and big roads, I turn into this forest road and continue into the trees. The road is very narrow. There are two ruts, the grass is in the middle, and around the car are large trees. I drive further into the forest road until I come to an end of the road, and it's just more forest. I manage to turn the car around, and now I'm facing the direction I came from. I turn off the engine and exhale. Everything around me is quiet and dark, but soon I can see between the trees far away two headlights approaching. The panic returns. They have seen where I turned off somehow and now they are coming yet again. I see it's them, and when they break through the trees, I realize now that it's just survival that counts. I take my wallet and car keys. The mobile is where it is. I get out of the car, close and lock it. I put my wallet in my pocket, turn around, and start running into the forest as fast as possible. I hear people in the Volvo calling for me. I run more profoundly and deeper into the woods. After some time, I reach a small clearing and see a large stone under a very big tree. I climb onto that rock, grab the tree branches, and climb up. There are thick leaves on the components, and soon, I have risen to the middle of the tree, and I am entirely hidden. I sit down on a thick branch against the tree trunk, breathe, and listen. I am convinced that I will not survive this night. They will find me, and now I can do no more to get away. And no one knows where I am. I think of my friends and my parents. Will they ever find me out here? Will they ever know what happened to me, or will I just become a missing person case? When I sit and I think about it, I hear how they are walking in the forest, looking for me in the distance, shouting, We'll find you! But luckily, they never came near my tree. I hear how they get deeper and deeper into the forest, but soon they turn and go back. I see everything through the leaves, their flashlights as they search through the woods. I soon hear how they continue back towards the cars. Then it's quiet. I dare not leave the tree. I stay there until it's morning and the sun has risen. Then, I climb down very slowly and very thoroughly and walk quietly back towards the car. At this point, I'm absolutely terrified that they will be standing there waiting. I'm pretty sure they wrecked my car, but when I go to the road again, I see my car. The Volvo is nowhere to be found. It seems they haven't even touched my car. After this, I just... I just went home. I tried to forget all about it. Until this day, I don't know what their case was all about and what they wanted, or what would have happened if I had let them talk to me. Honestly, I'm terrified to find out. Thanks for listening to these creepy and downright strange small-town horror stories from all around the globe. As always, if you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit your story at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I'd love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. If you enjoyed these stories, be sure to punch that like button in the face so it knows you mean business. If you're new to the swamp, why not join us? Be sure to subscribe, turn on notifications so you don't miss all the new videos that I upload on a nearly daily basis on all things natural and supernatural. If you're on the go but don't have YouTube Premium but still want to download and listen to your favorite swamp dweller scary stories no matter where you are, you can download them absolutely free from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, and literally everywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. Thank you guys so much for supporting the swamp the way you do. 
I'll see you all soon with another creepy video.